Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me as we begin a whole new journey in our investigation. Welcome to the Eris Tour. Our next block of episodes will be covering the heiresses that Dominic Dunn reported on. So many women, so much money, so many family ties, and so much crime, too. The first on our heiress tour is Margaret Benson. She may not be the most recognizable name to you, and her fortune is not as large as some coming this season. But Margaret's story and her death rocked the state of Florida in 1985. What is wrapped within the story of Margaret Benson? She was killed by her cold-blooded son, who was fueled by greed and so much family dysfunction. Dominic Dunn covered this case on his Power, Privilege, and Justice in Season 3, Episode 6, titled Blood Money. Before we begin our investigation today, I do have a spyglass here. I see a few folks who need some tremendous thanks and praise. First up, big love to Holly Link. What a wonderful review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for that. I've got a huge round of shout outs as well for our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Holy cats, Wendy, Callie W and Nancy B. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful for y'all showing the love over at done and done on Patreon where you get ad free and early episodes, not done yet. Bonus episodes and coming soon our Dominic Dunn book club beginning in October. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for more details on all of that, as right now it is time to launch the heiress tour with Margaret Benson, our first heiress up. This particular story really does have a bit of everything, except horses. There are a lot of horses coming up over the next weeks, but not in this one. There is, however, a tremendous amount of family dysfunction. This is a story of wealth and deceit and greed, tearing apart a family ruled by money. As Margaret Benson's son is not only going to commit matricide, he will also commit fratricide too. One of the jurors on this case, Patty Bennett, said after Stephen Benson's trial, this is Margaret's son, Patty Bennett, in an attempt to describe the Benson family, says, Dysfunction. I must think of a better word. Let's go with disastrous hate. You could see a hateful heart in Stephen then. Not just Stephen, but the whole family was just ugly. It was a journey, and every day we learned something new and awful. E. Richard Sirachi, an attorney who will advise Margaret Benson's daughter, Carol Lynn, during the trial, says the case was so compelling because of its colorful cast of characters. Sirachi adds this extra bit. It's like the story that keeps on giving. It just never stopped. It was full of surprises. It was just a tragic story. They had so much, and the family dynamic was about as whacked out as you could ask for. Let's investigate. family's fortune was amassed in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, by a little tobacco company named Lancaster Leaf. 
Lancaster Leaf is headquartered on Liberty Street, even still, and was founded by Harry Hitchcock. Harry was the first supplier of dark air cured tobacco, which is just fine for making cigars. Harry Hitchcock was the only supplier of dark air cured tobacco from the founding of Lancaster Leaf up to the mid-1960s. From its first crop purchased in 1927 to today, Lancaster Leaf, this company, is huge in dark leaf tobacco. This is the family that our heiress is born into. Born Margaret Hitchcock into this family with the most money in the town of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Harry Hitchcock and his wife Charlotte have two daughters, Margaret and Janet Lee. Margaret is the older girl, and for her part, she will fall in love with a man who is not wealthy. It is a wartime romance, and Margaret Hitchcock chooses Edward Hewlett Benson for her groom in 1945. He may not have had a lot of cash to begin with, but Benny, as he is known, is ambitious. Benny is going to become the next in line for Lancaster Leaf, helping out his father-in-law, Harry. Harry and Benny are going to grow the business and make more success for the family's fortune by the day. Margaret Hitchcock Benson, meanwhile, has their first child, a daughter, Carol Lynn. A son, Stephen, follows seven years later for Margaret and Benny. This is a wealthy family, no doubt. They reside in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and are, well, a little more too much than the rest of their community. Margaret and Benny like to spend their money. The home they live in has 17 rooms and an Olympic-sized pool. Their bathroom fixtures are made of gold. The Benson kids, Carolyn and Stephen, have every kind of toy a kid could want. Jet skis, four-wheelers, and there's a whole warehouse that holds all of these treasures, too. The Bensons spend their winters in Canada skiing and summers in New Jersey on the beach. Let's put that in perspective for just a moment. Canadian skiing and New Jersey beaches are not exactly the top-tier high-society playgrounds during these seasonal times. The Bensons do have money. They like to spend it, but not quite at the level that we have seen so far in our investigation. They have money, they have a name, but it's not quite as out there as some. Now, Benny as a dad is pretty distant, and Margaret as mom is really trying her best, but here's the thing with the Benson family. Both parents feel like money equals love. Dad is strict, pretty cold, not really warm in any way. Margaret is a bit warmer, but codependent in some way, acquiescing to what her husband demands. Our parents here see themselves as the provider of all things, and this providing comes with the attachment of full and absolute control over their children. That's the condition. So for Margaret and Benny, if you behave, we will help you out with anything. If you misbehave, then, well, you're exiled. You're out. This cannot be a healthy childhood, although it will not excuse the future behavior in this story. Carolyn, the first child, our daughter, is on the surface all things good and sunshine. She is lovely, she's poised, she's intelligent, and Carolyn very much falls in line with her parents' wishes and demands. Carolyn is also a beauty. She will win runner-up in the Miss New Jersey pageant in 1966. Carolyn, all things good and wonderful, at least on the surface. Carolyn will have her own hidden secret coming to light shortly. Stephen Benson, our younger son, is, well, not exactly everything a parent would dream of. Stephen is introverted. 
He is better with mechanical things and machines. He's not great at social skills or charm or any kind of real personality. Carolyn, of course, the oldest, has gotten a great deal of mom and dad's attention. And finally, with Carolyn going off to college, our budding adolescent Stephen, 12, 13 years old, is finally more than ready to embrace a life of being an only child. Stephen can't wait to be the only kid around, the center of attention. Finally, Stephen thinks this will be my time. At this exact same moment in time, Margaret has huge, exciting news. The Benson family is adopting an infant child, a boy. Scott is his name, and we are just over the moon thrilled about our new son. Stephen Benson, the kid who just never wins, cannot believe this particular turn of fortune. Stephen's parents are doting on this new baby, Scott, but think about this for a moment. Adopting an infant going in on 20 years into your marriage with your youngest child about to head into high school, it's an awfully suspicious time to adopt a child and Everyone in the Benson family and in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, knows that baby Scott is in fact Carol Lynn's child. This bouncing baby boy was fathered by a water ski performer at Cypress Gardens. Carol Lynn maybe had a bit of a wild side, stepped outside her parents' boundaries, although Margaret and Benny will raise Scott like their own. This is perhaps part of this dysfunction, cruelty of control that Margaret and Benny have. This is the Benson family move. It's a great example of control as if saying to Carolyn, here is your mistake that we are going to remind you of from your wild summer forever. This is family dysfunction in high form. Some additional financial dysfunctions to add in here. A thing I want you to know is that Margaret Benson never carried a pocketbook. Her father and then her husband, Benny, have controlled the purse strings for her her entire life. All of Margaret's friends are like Margaret. You have to carry a handbag to at least carry your driver's license with you. Not all of your dresses can have pockets for your lipstick. Margaret and her children, to be fair, have never had to think about money, how it is amassed, how it is valued, how it is handled. So, Stephen Benson was the youngest kid, now at 13 is the middle kid, the kid who's only wanted his parents' attention and love, never really having the skills to get it. Like, Stephen is just kind of a mess up. One time, Stephen and his father, Benny, go hunting. They're turkey hunting. And Stephen Benson returns so excited with his kill, which turns out to be a peacock. Stephen is just not gifted with ambition or drive, whatever his other abilities may be. Stephen will drop out of college three times before finally finishing with a business degree, but only barely. During this time, though, Stephen Benson will marry young at the age of 21. Mom and Dad, Margaret and Benny, will buy the home across the street from them for Stephen and his new bride. Everything that the newlyweds have is in Mom and Dad's name. Stephen doesn't own anything on his own, but not for lack of trying, See, Stephen has all these ideas for different kinds of businesses. And every single time, Margaret and Benny back Stephen up financially. And every single time, the business and Stephen will go belly up. Dad thinks that Stephen has no backbone. He just won't be able to do anything right. Papa thinks Stephen is a starter, not a finisher. It is aimless attempt after the next aimless attempt. So it's no big surprise that within half a dozen years, Stephen's wife number one is done with all of this nonsense. 
She has a husband who can never seem to find his own way, always being shadowed over by this parental control. Wife number one, out. And to be fair, I mean, come on, Stephen. You have to get pushed out of the nest sometime. Meanwhile, next door, baby Scott is growing up. And he is every grandparent's dream, as that is what Margaret and Benny are. But again, never outwardly, never to the family or to the public, although everybody knows. We all know the fact that Scott is Carol Lynn's, but it is never talked about. What is talked about is how handsome and charming and athletic and just plain wonderful Scott is at everything all the time. This is in direct contrast to the other adjectives used about his older brother, Stephen. Scott literally is the golden child. He walks on water and honestly not without merit. He is charming. He is sociable. He is good looking. He is athletic. He is a phenomenal tennis player and is looking to perhaps a professional tennis career. This is really the family that should have it all. And they do have it all, at least monetarily, but it is so quickly going to turn ugly. Let's pause for a moment here and return with how it all goes down. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude. Stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Bravo, bros. Good job. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. In 1980, Margaret and Benny, now in their late 50s, decide to retire to Naples, Florida. Margaret and Benny are looking to lead a little bit quieter of a life, although Naples is a hot spot for the wealthy. It's about 150 miles from Palm Beach, Florida, and on the West Coast. Naples is a bit quieter than its high society sister over on the East Coast. The key activities are golfing, tennis, and fishing, but don't be fooled. Naples, Florida at that time had more millionaires per capita than any other place in the United States. This is a relaxed lifestyle among the wealthy, and the Benson family settles right in. They move into a beautiful home in Quail Creek. This is a gated community situated right in between two lush and beautiful golf courses. A few things here in the early 80s. Benny, the longtime patriarch, passes away from lung cancer. This is not before he brings down Stephen with his new wife to Naples, giving Stephen a low-level job that Stephen is not succeeding at. But Stephen is here in Naples, having moved from Lancaster in place through Dad's illness and passing. Upon Benny's death, His widow, Margaret Benson, is left with a $10 million fortune and absolutely no clue how to control it. Her son, Stephen, is happy to help her. Honestly, all of Margaret's children are delighted to give mom some ideas on ways to spend her cash. And Margaret, remember, never having carried a handbag in her life is, well, Not your quality contestant for The Price is Right, if you know what I mean. Margaret will look to her son Stephen for assistance in managing her money. Stephen will quickly hook his mama up with Wayne Kerr, a new accountant. See, Margaret just won't hand over financial control to her hapless son Stephen, 
So Wayne Kerr will be this intermediary character in this story who is watching Margaret's books. Now, to be fair, Margaret is spending money. Let's talk about her own needs here. She lives in a home already, but is looking to build another home. As of early 1985, Margaret has also commissioned a cigarette boat. But Margaret here is also supporting her three grown children. Carolyn is in her late 30s with two sons of her own. She's divorced. Carolyn's dream is to be a Hollywood producer. Mama Margaret will buy Carolyn a condominium and support this Hollywood dream of her daughters along with her grandchildren. There's definitely money flowing to Carolyn. Scott, the youngest son, again wants to go professional on the tennis circuit. His lifestyle is costing upwards of $70,000 a month, which, whoa, seems like a pretty high dollar amount for some tennis balls and restringing your rackets. Scott is not just spending that money on tennis. Scott is also using drugs and taking full advantage of this charming, good-looking son getting away with what he would like to do. Scott would be in his late teens during this time. Scott is 21 in 1985. But it is Stephen Benson, the middle son, that is draining Mama Margaret the most. Stephen is now living with his second wife and three children in Florida, and Stephen really needs Margaret's money for (laughs) additional hapless business ventures. This time, Stephen has created the idea of Meridian Home Security, and that's only to start. This home security business Stephen opens is all funded by Margaret's money. Every startup cost, every business cost, along with Stephen's salary as well. But Stephen, he's dreaming big. He thinks that Meridian will be a corporate empire. And unbeknownst to his mother, Stephen will open almost half a dozen businesses within the same Meridian name. He's building an empire. Stephen only wants to start at the top. He has never actually wanted to work for it. And Stephen, now in his early 30s, has never wanted to work for it. He's had two decades of, let us hand it to you, Stephen. But truly, no one in the family has ever worked for it. No kid has ever had a real job or earned anything on their own. To suggest that to the family, it would have been preposterous to think about, at least up until now. Because by early 1985, Wayne Kerr, the accountant in the middle, the finance guy Stephen has hired for Margaret, goes to Margaret and was like, Margaret, you have spent $1.5 million this year alone. And holy cats, Margaret is panicked. Her $10 million is not going to last at that rate. And Margaret here, after this bit of forensic accounting, becomes very curious and also very attentive to where her money is being spent. Margaret Benson, for the very first time in her life, becomes really concerned with her finances and is naturally pretty horrified at what the accounting shows. Now, youngest son Scott has been wild for years. Temper tantrums and automobile accidents from wild driving, not to mention the misuse of drugs and alcohol. Scott is really a stereotypical rich kid gone bad, taking full advantage of this life his mother has been providing, and Scott has really indulged himself in pleasure. One of the complications here, though, Scott tends to get a little out of control. Margaret has been really worried at this same time. Her son Stephen seems to be the only thing that calms Scott down, which is perhaps why Stephen gets away with his behavior by his mother Margaret as long as he does. Stephen will step in to help resolve some of the dysfunction with Scott, maybe make a little bit of a peace. At some point, though, Scott does become so out of control that his mother Margaret has him arrested and Scott will spend some time in the psychiatric ward. The early 80s are 
some years of a lot of chaos within the Benson family. Stephen, meanwhile, is happy to take his mother's money and is funneling much of it into his Meridian business empire. And Stephen does this for a little while until 1985, when Wayne Kerr finds out about all of the other secret businesses under that Meridian umbrella. Wayne Kerr is going to tell Margaret Benson. Margaret Benson goes to her son, Stephen, what is this all about? Stephen denies all of this. And as Margaret and her son, Scott, are about to head to Europe for a little R&R, Margaret lets it go for now. But this is not (laughs) without Stephen calling Margaret before she leaves for Europe requesting two blank checks, please. For whatever reason, Margaret gives Stephen two blank checks and trots off to Europe with her youngest son, Scott. Stephen Benson will promptly write these checks out for $10,000. That's the first check. $50,000 for that second check. The money from the $60,000 is deposited with a quickness into Stephen's Meridian account, which Stephen says is payroll and business expenses, but it is not. Stephen is using that money to be the down payment for a new home he has chosen for himself and his family in Fort Myers, Florida, where Stephen has been secretly setting up all of his Meridian nonsense in Fort Myers, outside of Naples. Wayne Kerr gets wind of this. Wayne Kerr calls Margaret in Europe. Margaret is naturally furious. Here she is, in Europe, having the time of her life. This is late June, early July. Margaret will return early from her overseas trip. She meets Wayne Kerr at the airport. They're going to get to the bottom of all of this. Once Stephen hears the news that Margaret, his mom, has cut her trip short and is returning with a quickness to talk to him, this perfect son, who is now anything but perfect, Stephen hits the panic button. He gets this news that mom is coming home early, and his employees at the Meridian offices, which is really just a trailer, will recount that Stephen goes into his office shuts the door and hyperventilates. Send lawyers guns and money. The fan is about to be hit with a whole bucket of poop. Okay, so Mom and Wayne Kerr go to visit Stephen Benson, and Margaret is like, Stephen, where did you get this money for the down payment on this home in Fort Myers? And Stephen tells his mother that he sold his fancy car. Margaret takes Stephen's word for it, but then we'll get into her car with Wayne Kerr (laughs) to drive by the home in Fort Myers just for mom to see in the driveway of that home the car Stephen said he'd just sold. Margaret is livid. She calls Stephen and says that Wayne Kerr is going to be coming tomorrow to look over your books. It seems like Stephen may have snapped here But the evidence shows that the snapping really might have happened a little bit earlier as Stephen already had his ruthless and criminal plans underway. All of that discovery takes place July 7th, July 8th, and it is the morning of July 9th, 1985. It's a very quiet morning here in Quail Creek. Margaret and Carol Lynn and Scott are all going to head out on this quiet, fine morning to go to the groundbreaking of Margaret's new home. Stakes are going in the ground that day. Here on this quiet morning, Wayne Kerr is at the Benson family house too, looking over Margaret's books. Wayne is going to do this before he heads over to Stephen's office later that day. Here, though... The unusual part, Stephen shows up as well this quiet morning. Stephen was real keen on joining this family outing to go look at the prospective property, not that he's ever done anything like this before. 
At 9.18 in the morning, a blast is heard in the quiet neighborhood, and smoke is soon rising from the driveway of the Benson home as the 1978 Chevy Suburban of the family is in flames. This blast is so loud it is heard up to five miles away. Moments later, another explosion occurs. The Chevy Suburban is blown to bits. Literally, it is a shell of nothing left. The car is completely cratered out. Investigators arrive on the scene and are like, General Motors is about to get sued or this is the worst murder we have ever seen. What is even happening here? Margaret Benson, 63, and Scott Benson, 21, are both blown from the car and killed instantly. Carol Lynn, 39, is the only one alive and is immediately rushed to a burn unit in Boston with third-degree burns on over 30% of her body barely hanging on to life. Authorities arrive and find Stephen Benson inside the house, perfectly nonplussed by his entire family dead or dying in the front yard. Harold Young, the lead investigator, said, I knew it was no accident. The Chevrolet Suburban was blown all to bits and pieces, with a body lying out on each side. Harold Young goes into the Benson house, finding Stephen Benson talking on the telephone. Harold Young says he was calm as a cucumber. He was talking to one of his associates. The phrase, how much did we take in yesterday, sticks in my head. That seemed more important to him than his family lying all over the golf course. I knew he did it immediately. So here's Stephen Benson, not bothered at all, cool, calm. Cops naturally find this weird. And Stephen Benson from the get-go is not talking to the authorities. He immediately lets investigators know that he has an attorney and Stephen will be talking through him. This is not the only thing that Stephen does that smells weird to the cops. Stephen's white van is parked at the home as well. Of course, he drives a white van. The thing is, is that Stephen's white van has his family's blood all over it. Cops begin tailing Stephen undercover from day one, and they will call in to report to the sheriff in charge in that dark humor way that cops sometimes have that Stephen was taking Mother out for a ride again. Stephen never washes that white van. It gets even more suspicious. At Margaret and Scott's funeral, Stephen is talking to people there about how, yeah, when he was in middle school, one of his favorite things to do was to make pipe bombs in his basement. He and all of his friends got pretty good at making explosives in adolescence. Meanwhile, the crime scene guys are picking up pieces of the Chevy Suburban as well as bodies from up to three mansions away. All of these pieces of the bombs, because there are two of them, are collected and attempted to be reassembled into what they looked like. What do these two bombs look like? Where did they come from? Each are found to be 12 inches long, 4 inches diameter, both weighing about 26 pounds. Each incinerary device is detonated by batteries. Who knows how to make these kind of devices? Good Lord. Stephen is not exactly a criminal mastermind. The cops know that Stephen has spilled the beans about his explosives as a hobby (laughs) in his misspent youth. I mean, again, not really a mastermind. Every single bit of this crime is pointing to Stephen Benson, and it becomes completely verified when Carol Lynn comes around well enough to talk to investigators in Boston where she has been hospitalized. See, Carol Lynn has survived, 
and she is ready now to recount her tale of what happened that July morning, 1985. Carolyn doesn't really want to sell out her brother, and maybe in her struggle to recover, she's not even thinking about that. The authorities are there. Investigators have traveled to interview Carolyn, and she will recall about the morning of the bombing. Carolyn says, yes, I was in town. I was visiting from Boston. Carolyn was working with Mama Margaret on plans for the new home. Carolyn is already at the home in Quail Creek when Margaret returns from Europe. And Carolyn recalls her mom is super mad. She's yelling about Stephen saying, my brother's cut off. He's lied to me for the last time. But Stephen called that night. And Stephen said, hey, I'm going to come over in the morning. I want to help you, Mom, stake out this property. And the following morning, before Wayne can go check out Stephen's books, Stephen arrives at the Benson family home in his white van. And there is Margaret, his mom, and Carolyn, his sister, and Scott, his brother, and Wayne Kerr. And they're all about ready to head out to the new property, but before they can... Stephen Benson does something a little tricky. Carolyn recalls, Stephen will tell the family, I'm going to go out and get donuts for everyone. There is a donut shop around the corner. It should be about a 10-minute thing start to finish. But Carolyn recalls it takes her brother Stephen over an hour to come back. And Stephen did not take his white van to go get the donuts, He took the family's Chevy Suburban. Upon arriving back at the home, Stephen will walk everyone to the car. Stephen tells Scott, his younger brother, to drive, which has never happened before. Stephen tosses the keys to Scott, and after loading Scott in the car, as well as Margaret and Carolyn, Stephen very suddenly remembers He forgot something inside the house. He has to go back for the tape measure. Stephen will remove himself away from the vehicle, and Carolyn says the next thing she knew, there was a clicking noise and a huge explosion. There were flames and then a fireball. Carolyn says she doesn't know how she got out of the SUV, but somehow she does manage to escape the vehicle and Carolyn is rolling in the grass to put out the flames. And Carolyn will look up, and there is her brother Stephen standing in front of her. Carolyn looks at him, literally on fire, wondering why Stephen isn't helping her. Stephen turns from his sister and runs inside the house. Carolyn doesn't want to think her brother is responsible, but it sure does seem that way. Now, it has taken two weeks for the cops to get this testimony from Carolyn. And again, she is doing it from her hospital bed, weakened and recovering after surviving two explosive blasts. But the cops, over these two weeks, have had a little time to research all about the Benson family. And know that, in fact, Scott, the youngest son, is Carolyn's son, not her brother. And Carolyn is very honest with the cops, albeit reluctantly at first, about this. Which, for the authorities, validates Carolyn's credibility. If Carolyn will reveal this truth that no one ever talks about, the authorities feel like they can count on her testimony Carolyn, after this tragedy that's happened to her and her family, really has nothing to hide anymore. Meanwhile, during this two weeks, the bomb squads have been attempting to piece together these two bombs and are looking now for ways to connect them to Stephen Benson, the only real suspect. There really is no other suspect. How could there be? And again, Stephen, not a great criminal. He has gone around to the corner to Hughes Hardware Supply to buy all the parts. Where Stephen goes every day, everybody knows him there. There are all these invoices with all the bomb parts made out to Stephen. 
And the cops now are looking for fingerprints or palm prints of Stevens on that invoice connecting him to that purchase. There is a palm print on that invoice from Hughes Supply, but the authorities don't have Stephen Benson's prints on file. In the first search warrant of its kind, here we have a search warrant made out to get the finger and palm prints of Stephen Benson, which Stephen has to consent to with the search warrant and all in what do you know? They're a match. The cops do recall when they are printing Stephen that his hands never shake. He's super, super steady. It is five days later, August 22nd, 1985. About six weeks after Margaret and Scott's murder, that Stephen Benson is arrested in that never-been-washed bloody white van in Fort Myers, Florida. Stephen Benson, once arrested, falls asleep in the back of the car on his way to getting booked. That is some cold-blooded stuff. Stephen Benson is charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and an arson charge, too. Stephen Benson's trial will occur the following summer. Stephen Benson's second wife and his three kids quickly get out of town. They leave Fort Myers and head back to Wisconsin to be with her family and simply get out of the fray of all of this. They want no part of how ugly this trial is going to get. It's time for another quick break. We are going to come back and talk about how that trial goes down and what happens to the rest of our players in this story. This 1986 trial held in the summer is the biggest thing to happen in South Florida pretty much ever. This case is also definitely going to set some through lines that we're going to see in future cases throughout our podcast investigation. It is, of course, Stephen Benson on trial for double murder charges and attempted murder too. But here, in sort of a predecessor to... O.J. Simpson, the attorneys in this case, on both sides, become overnight sensations and these sort of runaway stars. For the prosecution, we have two brothers. These are the Brock brothers. Think country lawyer types. They're real subtle, real charming, nothing here but a country lawyer, but don't be fooled. They're both whip-smart and compiling evidence by the shopping cart full. Although the Brock brothers might fool you with their backwoods manner, they are super smart and they are coming for Stephen Benson. On Stephen Benson's side for the defense, we have Esquire McDonald. McDonald as counsel for the defense is a lot of pomp and circumstance. He has a real pretty wife. He drives a Jaguar. He's really flashy. He's over the top. The press refers to this meeting of attorneys as Miami Vice meets the Beverly Hillbillies. This is the headline news. And this is going to play out just about the way you'd expect. The Brock brothers are going to lay out their case. McDonald, as counsel for the defense, is looking for anyone else to blame. And naturally, Scott, the brother, is first up. McDonald's going to make his case saying it was Scott who was way into drugs, and certainly if Scott ran afoul in the drug trade, it would make sense that exploding the car that Scott was in would be some kind of vengeance for some transgression or another. The records for Scott for his stay in the psychiatric ward are brought into court, but yikes, Scott's doctor was charged with sexual assault the year before? So that doctor is discredited. It only gets worse from here. McDonald, for the defense, does hire a jury selection expert who was hired and works for the defense. But here for the prosecution, this lady was arrested three years before for putting a hit out onto her boyfriend. Like there is a sordid cast of characters in all of this. And what is getting lost is Stephen Benson and his actual crime. Stephen every day shows up in court as like a land beyond the void. No reaction, no nothing. Prosecution puts on a good case. 
Defense is going to put on kind of a show. But Carol Lynn, Stephen's sister, flies in on a late plane and she will be the star witness for the prosecution, the sister of the person who has manifested this terrible crime. And Carol Lynn really isn't into implicating her brother per se, but her testimony is hers and no one else stared above her from the driveway with dead eyes as she was left to lay dying. Carol Lynn looks to the jury during her testimony, never looking to her brother. Again, Stephen shows no emotion, not just during this testimony from his sibling, but any part of the trial. Carol Lynn will reveal the shocking fact that Scott was her son. This is the first time Carol Lynn will publicly admit this. The prosecutors, those Barack brothers, country lawyer folks, present 162 pieces of evidence in two weeks, and their case looks pretty solid. That's not without the defense trying to blame Scott. This is their likely reasonable doubt motive. Certainly, all of Scott's drug problems causing a gangland hit in Naples, like, it's just kind of ludicrous. Scott paid for his drugs and didn't do drugs on the scale of gangs needing to take him or his family out. The defense plays a little dirty and will play a few of the tapes. Margaret had made some tapes of Scott as a teenager, just recording his rage and hostility to Margaret. Those are played in court, and even at this point, the judge in the trial has had enough. The judge says, we are not going to slander the dead in this courtroom. This is all hearsay. Defense, you need to get your case together. And again, the prosecution has made a pretty solid case. We have a spoiled and resentful son finally about to be found out. Maybe having to face some kind of accountability for the first time in his life. Who instead is so cold-blooded that he chooses to murder his family instead of face up to that accountability. Carol Lynn will remain in court after her testimony, and she is here listening to all of this damning evidence against her brother, and she will ask, how did he ever hope to get away with it? Harry Hitchcock, Margaret's father, this is Stephen's grandfather, he shows up too at the trial. Harry Hitchcock, as you can imagine, is distraught that the fortune he built was squandered for this? Harry was an empire builder, and what did his grandson do with that empire? It is no surprise that Stephen Benson was found guilty on all charges. This is on the first vote from the jury, no less. The jury was split on the death penalty, so Stephen Benson would be spending two life sentences back-to-back in prison. Carol Lynn inherits the bulk of Margaret's estate, with her brother Stephen left with nothing. Stephen doesn't even have the cash to get printed records of the transcripts from the trial in order to work on any kind of appeal. Stephen Benson was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Add on to that a charge of arson of a dwelling. Stephen barely misses the death penalty, but again receives two life terms in a Florida prison. Not that that prison ever stays the same. Stephen is transferred around a lot. It turns out killing your mother doesn't win you too many friends in the pen. Stephen Benson lives a life under constant threat and abuse. Three years after Stephen's guilty verdict, Grandpa Hitchcock passes away. This is after a long life, but Harry Hitchcock, feeling like the money he made in his life corrupted his children and grandchildren, will instead choose to give the majority of his money to charities at the time of his death. There is only a very limited amount of his estate bequeathed to his family. And it is 30 years later, almost to the near day of that explosion, this time July 3rd, 2015, that Stephen Benson dies at the Taylor Correctional Institute in Perry, Florida. 
Stephen Benson was 63, the same age his mother was when he killed her. Stephen's cause of death or injuries sustained to the right side of his head after being stabbed with a homemade knife by another inmate. This is the result of what was a long-standing feud with Cornell Washington. This beef between inmates goes back to 2012, and by 2015, Cornell Washington had had enough, and along with another inmate, will ambush and shank Stephen Benson. Although Cornell Washington was charged with the murder of Stephen Benson, Washington was acquitted. As I think we will see in the coming episodes, that money certainly cannot buy happiness, as the Benson family illustrates for us. So much tragedy and greed within that gated community, and sometimes the danger really is coming from inside the home. Thank y'all so much for joining me today with our first heiress. We have so many different kinds of stories coming this season for you on Done and Done. I really do appreciate you tuning in and telling your friends and fellow podcast listeners about us, as well as your kind reviews and emails too. Y'all are simply the best. If you are looking to add a little bit more to your investigation, be sure to check out patreon.com slash doneanddone. $2 a month will deliver every single episode of Done and Done ad-free and early. $5 a month will get you in on almost 60 extra not-done-yet episodes. Our bonuses, including one this week on one of my favorite mother-daughter heiress pairs, Anna and Delphine Dodge. If you are looking to get into the scandals of Dominic Dunn's fictional writing, Our Dominic Dunn Book Club is beginning in October. $10 a month will get you in on that, as well as all the other goodies from the previous levels. Thanks again to all of you investigators for spending your time with me today. We have a whole new heiress coming for you on our next Dunn Day. And until we meet again, you know that I must insist that you stay curious and keep on investigating. Big love, y'all. Bye. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.